Hello and welcome to the Radical Reformers podcast. I'm Andrew Laird. This podcast is for people who want to understand what it really takes to make a positive impact in public services. It features leaders from councils, the NHS, central government, charities and social enterprises, as well as think tanks and social investors. This is about policy and the implementation of policy and the grit and determination it takes to run successful public services. It's not about politics. Politics does not feature at all and the discussions are all the better for it. It's also about the stories and personal journeys of the leaders I speak to, the challenges they faced and the lessons they've learned. Running and reforming public services is incredibly difficult and I'm very grateful to these inspiring leaders for taking the time to share with others. So before we get into it, I just want to take a second to thank my friends and colleagues at Mutual Ventures for supporting me to do this podcast. My day job at Mutual Ventures is about supporting public services to be better, more sustainable and more connected to communities. This means working with central government departments to help them build bridges between policy development and local implementation. It means working with councils to help them plan for the future. And it also means working with NHS trusts to help them find their place in the new health and care system. So I hope you enjoy this podcast and that you get as much from it as I have. And don't forget to subscribe on the website or follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter to make sure that you never miss a future episode. And you might even want to go back and listen to some of the older ones. Okay, this conversation is with Selena Douglas. Selena is an exec director at the Northeast London Foundation Trust, which is a large community services provider operating in London, operating in Essex, and also in Kent. Selena is one of those really interesting people I love talking to who has a rich mixture of professional experiences. She's worked in the NHS, she's worked in councils, and she's also worked in the third sector. And this gives her two very important perspectives. The first is around challenging traditional progression routes within the public sector and within public services. Obviously, one way to go is to stay in the same organisation in an NHS and a council and work your way up. But Selena's route has been to gather a range of experiences. And this is where the second important perspective comes in. And that is an appreciation of the role that other important players have in health and care like councils and third sector organizations and finally we talk about the importance of representation and by that i mean gender ethnicity but also organizational type so i hope you enjoy it selena i'm hugely grateful for you taking the time to have this conversation Um, i wonder if you could start just by saying a little bit about who you are so uh, my name's selena douglas um, I am currently working for North East London Foundation Trust, NELFT. I'm an exec director there. Um, I've worked in NHS, I've worked in local authority and I've worked in the charitable sector. Uh, but most importantly, um, I'm also a mother of four um, and a dog parent, which is a new thing parent. for me <laughs> um, and was something I always said no to and I've given in. So uh, that that's a little bit about me. Very good, very good. We'd like to be, my wife and I would like to be dog parents and we're we're giving it some, some serious thought. How, how many dogs have you got? So I have got one, Peggy, yeah. uh, who is 15 months old, a cockapoo, who has the energy of a two-year-old toddler. 
and probably the brain of a, a not even a two year old toddler. Um, but uh, she's she's lovely. And I say the one thing when people ask me about a dog, is it a good idea? I found with Peggy, I was never a dog person. I'm still not a dog person that she is. She brings such joy. She's always happy. She wags her tail yeah. when she comes in and you don't need to have a conversation with her. <laughs> I just think dogs are the very definition of unconditional love, aren't they? They just regardless, they just want your approval constantly. I, I, I could talk about that for quite a while, as you can probably tell. But yeah. you're in the NHS now. But, but can you say just a little bit more about where you worked, the different organisations that you worked in before because I think that breadth of experience is is very interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think for me, I think I'd start off my sort of career journey as well, just explaining how I got into where where I'm going um, and where I am now. Um, And I probably didn't take a a traditional route. I absolutely um, wasn't sure what I wanted to do or what I wanted to be. And and actually, I was probably, um, I went back to university late um, and um, I went into higher education later on. Um, I'd had two children, decided that I wanted to do something in health and social care, went off, did a couple of A-levels part-time while working and then went to university. Um, I then thought, well, what do I do? Um, and I, I, and I then, sort of didn't... this was kind of what mid late twenties, something like that, or yeah. It, I mean, I say later, but it was it was early twenties, um, okay, and, right. and so, not, so... Not, not that late. <laughs> I graduated when I was twenty six, so it's not that late, is it? No. <laughs> but but compared to my peers, because I had a different sort of uh, lifestyle, and I had two children when I went to university, it was totally different. Yes. Um, but yeah, I was 26, um, came out of uni, thought, what do I want to do with this degree and where do I want to go? And I started working frontline with victims of domestic violence and uh, doing sort of psychological um, and counselling based work with them. It was really, really hard. And I totally, totally respect anybody who works frontline uh, with people who use our services. And I spent a couple of years doing that um, and then decided, well, what, where did I want to be and what did I want to do? And that's when I went into the local authority world um, and worked in mainly mental health in, in various locations, uh, mainly with people who were very disadvantaged, very vulnerable. Uh, in the, in those days, there wasn't the commissioner-provider split. We were commissioners and providers in the local authority, so managed operational teams um, and also was a commissioner uh, around mental health, substance misuse, and towards the latter part of my career when I was in Westminster around homelessness as well. So, so I, which councils have you have you worked with over the years? So I was in Hackney for a number of years. I was yeah. there when Hackney went bust, and that was a that was an exciting oh. time. Um, and I've got to say, innovation, 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 innovation. And Hackney was very different. It was you know twenty odd years ago. It wasn't the Hackney that that is now. Yeah. Um, and mean, then it's, I it's to... amazing you can look back on it now with a smile and say it was exciting. I'm sure it didn't feel exciting at the time. No, you used to you used to have to get um you know every time you wanted a pen, get it signed off, um, yeah. and and you know and, and things like that. So. It, but it was, it was a great place to work. And I've got to say, Hackney was a fantastic grounding, actually. Then I went to Camden uh, for a little while. Camden was in that sort of regeneration phase. It was uh, yeah. sort of trying to work on King's Cross. It was doing lots of innovative stuff around uh, moving people around. Um, but while I was in Camden, I was working on a, a project across Camden and Westminster around uh, Centre Point Tower in the Soho area. Yeah. Um, and that was about how we support um, injecting drug users in that area who um, 
really were disadvantaged and really didn't have anywhere to go. Um, and that gave me some exposure to Westminster and a job came up in Westminster and they asked me to go for it, which was one of these newfound things called a commissioner. Um, and so I was uh, I was the head of service and commissioning and I was joined with the primary care trust um, and I spent seven years in Westminster doing various jobs, uh, going from sort of head of service and head of teams uh, up yeah. to assistant director towards the end. Um, but I absolutely loved it. Um, and working across health and social care was fantastic. When I started that job. Uh, I worked in a joint adults and children's social care world. Um, it was before the splits between adults. The director of adult social care roles hadn't been um, uh, developed. And so it was really, really great doing some great stuff around families and yeah. working in a very sort of joined up way. It was really great. You mentioned Westminster there. I think for uh, I don't think any of the listeners here, but a lot of people who I know who don't operate in this area think of Westminster and they think affluence. But there are some incredibly deprived areas within the Westminster council area that need a lot of support. Absolutely. So you've got I mean, you do have a lot of money, but you've got money and you've got people who've got a lot of money right next cheek and jowl with somebody who, you know, maybe is living in a council property or a housing association property. Uh, so you've got those absolutely you know huge great big span of, of experiences in Westminster and it was you know very very high profile so anything that happened would happen in Westminster we managed quite a lot of the the sort of big disasters as well one of the big sort of career things for me as an individual was the um, 7-7 bombings um, and that was handled by um, our social care department um, and we set up the rest centres and things like that and that was quite pivotal for me in my career just thinking about where I wanted to be and, and what I wanted yeah. to do that was an experience I remember being in um in Victoria Street when we heard that had happened I was actually in the office and you know the next thing was you know we're on gold command we had all these yeah. different things happening um something that I hopefully will never experience again I mean it was something as professionals we lived through um and we stepped up our response but absolutely awful for the people it affected the families oh, yeah. Um, it was, you know, it was absolutely horrendous. But, you know, something it was something that um, I feel like I made a difference. And that's been yeah. sort of a clear thing throughout the whole of my career. I want to make a difference for people um, and to, if I can, have a small impact on how they're cared, they're cared for and treated for. Um, and I think that's that's sort of been pivotal to a lot of the, the roles I've gone for. Fantastic. Well, that was some of your council experience. So then you were in Turning Point for a while. I did indeed. So um, I went to Turning Point for three and a half years um, after. So after Westminster, it was at the time when there was lots of changes in health and social care. Um, the primary care trusts were going and they were moving into CCGs. Um, and as a joint appointment, um, it was, well, what do I want to do um, and where do I want to be? Do I want to? I had. I was going to go back into the local authority because I had a local authority contract or do I uh, want to sort of step out and at the time uh, Lord Victor Adabawala who was the chief exec of Turning Point spoke to me they were looking for a new managing director um, across their services um, and I thought that looks really exciting um, and I spent three and a half years traveling the length and the breadth of the country <laughs> delivering services to lots of different areas um, and it was really really great I don't want to spend another night in a premier inn. I've got to be honest. Yes, I understand. I understand. So that was turning point. But now you're you're in the NHS. So how did that change happen? You mentioned just not wanting to spend any more nights in a premier inn as standard. So what what drove that change? 
So actually, it was um, my old Westminster days came back. Um, and uh, interesting enough, my old boss at Westminster was then the lead cabinet member at Hammersmith and Fulham. Mm-hmm. And they were looking for a director of commissioning and a lead director for adult social care in Hammersmith and Fulham. And I went for that and was successful. I really enjoyed that challenge across the, the three boroughs. But then the job came up in Newham and I'm a North East London resident, have been for 30 years. Don't let this accent fool you. And I decided that uh, being in, in North East London would be something that would be great for me. So I went for a job in the NHS. I remember the headhunter saying to me, you know, don't be disappointed if you don't get it, Selena, um, because, uh, you know, there's other candidates and they've, they're sort of dyed in the wool, NHS folks. Yeah. Um, and I think to everybody's surprise, I must I must have pulled it off at the interview. I'm not really sure. Um, but um to get that job and I was deputy chief officer for Newham CCG and then did a variety of jobs there for seven seven years managing director then managing director of uh uh, in Waltham Forest as well and then in Tower Hamlets so three London boroughs I was managing director for the the CCG um, and led a number of programs um, and then decided that I wanted to go back into a provider world and that's what I did. Amazing. And to their credit, actually, that that they offered you the job, because I'd like to talk a, a little bit about the traditional roots of progression and really challenging that, because I think that was the message that the headhunter was giving to you. You know, there are there are true traditional candidates here who they'll probably go for. And uh, like I said, to their credit, they didn't. And certainly from my experience, I mean, you, you have a, a, an incredible depth of experience there, but um, from my experience of working with public servants, the best ones and the ones who understand how to actually get things done, the ones who really understand the reality of the situation on the ground are the ones who've had a breadth of experience and don't necessarily go the traditional route within just one silo within public services. What's your opinion on that? So I'm really glad now uh, at the stage I'm at that I've done the roles I've done. Um, and I think it really adds to what I'm doing um, because, let's be frank, health cannot deliver the services without local authority and social care input in the main in a number of different areas. Of course, there are things that are pure health um, and are pure health responsibility. But the vast majority of the services, particularly for people who are frail or elderly, there needs to be that join up with social care. So understanding that world and the way in which it's governed, which is different, is super important. And for me, I think that breadth of experience um, really adds to it. And I would say my turning point experience where I had oh, 50 odd commissioners uh, nationally, all with different ideas about what they wanted locally, all with their own local pressures, really helped me understand what it was like from a provider point of view um, to deliver into those services. And I think that national experience of what's happening um, in local authorities across the country really does help broaden and and sort of strengthen your knowledge and your knowledge base um, around areas. And I think for me, I think that experience, particularly in the new world of the integrated care systems, is going to be integral. Um, and I, at the moment, I span two or three integrated care systems in depth and actually looking at how we have to work in partnership. And I think that's a fantastic move is going to be the test of how we work. And if we go back into our silos, I think we will have lost something. And I think that the join up needs to be deepened further. 
Yeah. So I think the message there to anybody building a career for themselves in public services is don't be afraid to take a chance to move across, to move to different areas, to get that breadth of experience. And I think from my perspective, if more people did that, we'd have a much stronger public services. Um, I, I want to talk about your current role and the current reforms. So just as a start, could you say a, a little bit more about the role of the North East London Foundation Trust or NELFT, as everybody calls it? Yeah, of course. So NELFT is a provider of community and mental health services. As the title says, North East London, no surprises there. But we are also in Mid and South Essex and in Kent um, and deliver services across five ICSs. So we're actually bigger than our name um, outlines. Uh, we deliver everything from community services and, and, you know, and access to psychological therapies to home rehab for community, uh, all the way up into uh, wards and beds for those with acute mental health um, issues. Um, and I think the breadth of the, the services that NELF delivers really helps in terms of being able to understand those multiple needs our service users have and the people that use our services. They don't the people who use our services don't necessarily fit into just one category, either a mental health patient or somebody who needs community help. Sometimes they cross a number of our boundaries. And I think with having that breadth, breadth and spread, I think it helps us as an organisation understand those needs. Indeed, yes. And it sounds like these are the services that we really need to be investing in if we're trying to keep people away from crisis and away from having to go into to hospital and things like that. I would absolutely, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to say any different, am I? I, I would no, absolutely well, agree. I, I, I realised that that was an easy question. I would quest. absolutely agree. Yeah. What I would say, though, is money's not everything. I would say that workforce is really, really important. And if anybody listening to this has heard my journey through um, the various different health and social care environments, I would encourage them to look at, you know, where do they want to be in terms of health and social care? It's a really, really rewarding career. Um, but we are short of workforce and I would really, really, you know, be delighted everybody wants to talk to me about how they can join the NHS as well. So what what is your view of the current set of reforms? I mean, I'm conscious that the experience that you've had and uh, your your career to date that you've explained, you will have lived through quite a few iterations of the NHS and various reforms. Um, so I I am really, really hopeful that this set of reforms will bring us much more together in a system approach so if the integrated care systems do what they say on the tin i am really really up for it and i think that's absolutely the right direction of travel i think the problem is is people like me who've been through so many different um changes in the nhs uh we want to make sure that this happens this time and we want to make sure that it delivers what what it could deliver which could be absolutely fantastic for the people who use our services I suppose I would have liked to have seen maybe a little bit more of a join up with uh, local authorities, but I think that will come um, and around social care in particular. And I think that's a real opportunity. I think the Better Care Fund started that journey, but we've still got quite a way to go. And I, I think some of the advances we made through COVID, if we could embed them, I think they'd be absolutely great. So for me, it's about making sure the reforms really happen and there's a system approach uh, to developing um, the way forward. I think also moving the and, and the commissioner provider split being more blurred in the future actually will help us put resources and really good resources like business intelligence and things like that into much more of a provider footprint. And I think that will really, really help going forward. Yeah. 
I really hope it has the time to bed in. I think that would be my last comment. I, it, time, it will yes. take time. It will take time. And let's give it a bit of an opportunity. Let's not just judge it by this winter. That's a really good point about time, because the national political cycle doesn't allow much time, unfortunately. And I mean, like we've seen, so we're recording this during the week of the Conservative Party conference. We're not going to to get into what happened there, because mm-hmm. that's not what this podcast is about. But it's quite clear that governments can change direction on things quite quickly. So I think we'd make a, a joint plea to policymakers to give this this one a chance to try and bed in. I think it'll be very reassuring to people to hear you, uh, somebody who's not an NHS lifer, being so supportive of these changes and the ambition of them. So I think that that's a re- really positive thing. Um, I wanted to pick up on your point about the involvement of councils. So I completely agree. I'm a huge fan of the role of councils within health and care. I think a lot of the wider determinants of health mm-hmm. are controlled, or at least are more heavily influenced by councils than they are by the NHS. And from what I can read and understand from conversations, there is quite a bit of flex in the systems that a system can include councils more or make sure councils have more of a voice if they choose to there seems to be quite a bit of flexibility is that fair i would i would say so and i think it's it's for those local systems to have those conversations with their local authorities about how you can expand that much more than the remit of say the director of adult social care so how do you get the person who's in charge of you know parks to be involved and have some of these conversations i've seen some fantastic work happening with our director of public health and for me, I, and that's what I'm saying, I think if this could bring that health and social care world together, I think that'd be great. But also if it could influence the whole gamut of what services are delivered by local authorities, I think that would be really, really, really positive for us. Um, and I think there is flexibility. And I think some areas have looked for how they join that up at a very senior level um, all the way um, in, you know, in terms of delivery. Um, and I think that is going to really stand us in good stead for the future. And I think without that join up, I think the integrated care systems would take longer to bed in. But I think where the relationships are maybe not where you want them to be, if people have a bit of time to be able to do this, I think they will also get there as well. I've got to say, though, Andrew, you know, if I'm not positive about it, then I shouldn't be here anymore. I've got, you know, (laughs) because... I've always said that the day I, I get fed up and I think this isn't for me is the time to, to exit. I, you know, I'm positive about these changes. I can understand where they're coming from and I can, and more importantly, understand the benefit for our patients. Yes, indeed. Indeed. I feel similarly. Now, obviously, I don't don't work on the front line, but our you know, mutual ventures work supporting public services. And there are quite a few times recently, actually, that I've been thinking, gosh, I really can't put up with any more of the, these these changes, these kind of what might be not necessarily uh, entirely wise decisions being made about things. But then I always come back, which I think is what you're saying, to, well, why am I doing this in the first place? Mm-hmm. I kind of go back to that and think, right, OK, this is why I'm doing it. And I think that's that's fundamentally important. And most of the people I've met, whether it be adult social care, whether it be the voluntary sector or indeed whether it be um, local authorities, their primary driver 
is to deliver good services and to deliver and make a change for people. You know, don't get me wrong. Of course, I've met people who they, you know, they're, they're just there and that that's not what they're interested in. But actually, the vast majority have. And the vast majority for me really want to make a difference. And I think if we keep to that ethos and that principle, then I think we're, we're in good good stead. I think we need the next generation of people to come through. And I think we need to be more representative of our local communities. I think that's an important point. Um, and I think we need to have wider, cast our, our net wider in terms of the skill set we have uh, leading all of our systems as well. Um, but I think we will get there. And I think these reforms, hopefully, will, will get us further down that road. Yes, indeed. Um, we're going to come back to the, the question of representation later. But I just want to pick up on a couple more things about the current reforms before we do that. So there is a lot of talk about the shortcomings of the inverted commas medical first approach. And uh, there's also a lot of talk about the importance of the wider determinants of health. I've already talked about how a lot of those mm-hmm. like housing, employment, the councils might have more influence than the NHS over those. Do you think that the current set of reforms, and you have touched on this a bit, but I want to just get a a real focus on this question. Do you think the current set of reforms really appreciates the importance of the wider determinants? Um, I think if if the integrated care systems really look at that, and they're they're all in the process now, aren't they, developing their five-year strategies, and as long as they look wider than just NHS things that we've got to do, which absolutely we need to do, it's really important people get their elective care. That's I'm not going to take that away from from the NHS. And the NHS does a fantastic job around um, a number of areas. But if we really look at what the integrated care systems need to do in terms of joining up the whole of those local systems um, and to make it a system responsibility to deliver good health and social care, then yes, I do think the reforms are are enough and wide ranging enough to be able to do that. I think that we just I keep saying it I keep repeating myself Andrew but it's time it will just take time for this to happen and we just need to be given that time yeah so you've worked in the NHS councils but also in the third sector so just looking at these new set this new set of reforms what roles should those various players now have within the system now I appreciate that's a very broad question but maybe if we focus in on councils and the third sector well, to be frank, in social care, a lot of their delivery and their provision is through the third sector. So they absolutely need to be and have an equal place at the table, like big organisations that are, you know, big NHS organisations. And I think the only thing for me is is about giving them re- the resources to be able to do that. Um, because the reality is, if you're a very small organisation delivering, say, a niche care product in one area, then you might not have the the um, people to be able to go to every single meeting that that's sort of um, outlined. So for me, it's about making sure they're resourced in a way that they can get their voice heard and make sure it's not tokenistic, I think is really, really important. And it is the local authority's responsibility to manage the market um, uh, around um, a lot of the, the sort of social care elements of their delivery and I think part of that is about how they engage in these new reforms and I think the move to providers leading uh, strategies across areas um, is also going to mean that providers are going to need to understand what does that mean and how do they link with the voluntary sector going forward and that's a new world 
for providers, not for every provider. You know, um, a lot of the providers we work with and the patches we work in work with organisations such as Mind um, and, and other organisations, which are fantastic at local level delivery. But actually, you know, we're going to have to think about how we contract with them, what that looks like if we get delegated responsibility. How do we make it fair? You know, importantly, how do we make it fair? Um, and how do we deliver the best outcome for the people that we're serving? So I think they have an integral point. I think it needs to be um, an integral part. Sorry. It needs to be on the same footing as other providers. Um, and we need to just make sure they've got the resources available to be able to do that. So when you say the same footing, what does that mean in a, in a practical sense? So it's about having them around the tables when you're having the discussion. So for yeah. me, a lot of the times... Uh, and decision making, not just discussions, decision making as well, because a lot of the times those decisions may be made in, say, part two of a board or something where, you know, the decisions have to be made separately from, say, a, a main meeting. And I really do um, would like to see our voluntary sector providers being involved in that. Obviously, if they have a conflict of interest, they can't do that. That absolutely makes sense. But we manage those conflicts across the board. So we should use the same principles for the voluntary sector as well. Yes, indeed. Thank you very much for that. That was really interesting. So um, you mentioned representation. So I want to come back to that now. So when we think about representation, it's both in terms or it's in terms of gender, ethnicity, socioeconomic background, um, but also in terms of organisational type, which is what we've just talked about here. Um, I know representation in terms of gender and ethnicity is something you're engaged with. How is the NHS doing on this and how can it do better? So, I mean, I've, I've got to say, I think that we need to go further faster. Um, and I think yeah. as an, as a, um, you know, a national organisation, we should be going further, further and faster on, on being representative. I think there's some fantastic things that are out there. I know in my own organisation, I was at um, a session probably about two or three weeks ago with people who've been through our, our leadership programme uh, and were thinking about their next steps and where they wanted to be. Um, and I think there's something around how do we support and nurture people um, all the way up through their journey so we can be more representative. It can only add value to the services we are delivering if we are more representative of the people we serve. Um, and I think that is absolutely it's got to be fundamental going forward. And I think it's about the protected characteristics, as we all know them, not just uh, one or two of them. I think it's about all protected characteristics um, and making sure that people are able to have a career are, are, and are enabled to have a career um, uh, across um, whatever sector they want to. But I do think we just need to think about the support for those individuals um, and getting them up through through the roofs. I've got to say the NHS does have some fantastic schemes and programmes, and I would advocate for anybody to be involved and as part of that. And I think once you're at a board level within the NHS, I think it's also about how you network and have peer relationships with other people who might not be in your trust, but are wider than that, to make sure that you are being supported as well. I completely agree with with all of that. But just for people listening, they're going to want to know some some practical ways of achieving this. You know, because I think every, most people, almost said everybody there, it's pro- probably not true, but most people would really subscribe to what you've said there. But practically, how can organisations? both within the public sector and in the third sector and wider achieve some of that? So I think the first thing is, and I've I've done a number of um, sort of podcasts and webinars on how we become more representative. And there's there's sort of two or three things that I think as an individual you can really, they're they're within your own 
frame of being able to do something, you know, that within your own control, I think is the word I'm looking for. So the first one is, is to seek out individuals who you really want to understand where their journey is. And I've got to say, somebody said this to me years ago and I thought they're never going to want to talk to me, these individuals. And I went out and did it. And I thought these people are super busy. They're never going to want to talk to me. Every single person I contacted and I said, can I have half an hour just to talk about your career journey and where you're going? Every single person responded. Every single person gave me half an hour. And I wasn't, you know, I wasn't a board member at the time. So I don't think it was a status or a hierarchy thing. And I didn't know all of them. And I think that's a really important point is to speak to people, find out how they got there. You will find people who haven't had non-traditional routes like myself. You'll find people who've been nurses and then decided to become managers and then decided to go a different route and did different things. And it is enlightening. And those people then are think people who you can have those conversations with and you can ask them, what do you think I should do? And sort of next steps. And that's how you start to build your network. And like I say, I was giving that advice many years ago and thought it was absolutely nobody's going to respond to me. Um, And and that was the and and they did. And everybody did. And I give that advice to anybody who comes and sees me. So go and meet out and seek out people you want to talk to and ask for half an hour of their time and find out about them. I think the second thing is, and I am cringy at this. I am absolutely awful at this is networking. Now, people hear me talk and they think, oh, Celine, you can chat. And they'll see me do a presentation and they'll think, oh, yeah, you know, you love doing presentations. No, I still get butterflies in my, t- in my stomach. Yeah. I still don't like going off and networking. I find it absolutely awful. When you've got kids, when you've got a busy life, it's really difficult to get out to the conferences and network. But it's so important. You've got to yeah. have a network of people. So go and do that. It doesn't have to be the big major conferences. It can be something like a regional event. Get your name down on things. And people will help you do that as well. So when you have your conversations, ask people, are there meetings I should be going to? Are there things I should be doing? Again, expand that um, and network. And like I say, I'm the world's worst at this. So, you know, I'm giving advice and and I'm really cringy at it. So apologies about that. No, do you know, I'm really glad you said that because (laughs) I, I completely agree. There is nothing... Like, I enjoy having conversations with people, but my goodness, at a conference, is there anything I fear and dread more than approaching someone and introducing myself and, oh, right, how are you? But then always, inevitably, within a minute, I'm totally relaxed and I'm having a nice conversation with them. But it's 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 just, it feels really unnatural. And I think particularly after the last two years where we've been doing everything, video calls and, you know, my LinkedIn network has expanded hugely but they're not real connections are they i mean they're not they're not people i've met and had a proper conversation with and i just i totally agree with what you're saying it's it's really difficult um speaking in public is really difficult as well and those butterflies are are a totally natural adrenaline adrenaline response you to that so i get all that but i also subscribe to what you're saying about how important it is to do it regardless because you will totally benefit from that network of people because you'll have a wider group of people that you can call on if somebody says to you i've got a problem with this what i really enjoy doing is saying "Ah, actually i know somebody who can help you and just introducing them i get a real buzz out of that and that network that proper communication and the importance of relationships is something that is not always valued because if you were to think of what we've been talking about around representation be really easy to write a representation strategy let's say with a great plan and everything but actually the only way it works is if the people 
the actual real people engage in it and are prepared to have those conversations with each other and build relationships with each other. The plan, the technical solution, inverted commas, is all well and good, but it's the relationships. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm a great believer in, in relationships sort of take you forward. It, it takes me full circles, that conversation around the ICSs. It takes time to build those relationships. Yeah. It takes time for things to bed in. And you do have to have an element of trust as well as part of that. So for me, um, this is all part of that wider world. But, uh, you know, I'm with you. You know, it is cringy going up to Sunday at a conference. <laughs> but actually, you know, you can after two minutes, I've spoken about whatever. I've spoken about my dog or the kids or whatever. And, um, yeah. and you know, we're real people and somebody else will be able to connect with you on that. And yeah. I think that is so important. And then the third thing I just sort of say to become more representative, it doesn't mean you necessarily have to go to, on a course to do it. I think it is about how your organisation can support you, how you network, like I said, how you get those that time in with people and how you look at your own individual journey. You might not get that through a course. It may well be that you, I don't know, um, I've recently been mentoring somebody who gets incredibly nervous at interviews and we've been prepping interviews and, and getting ready for, for the next big interview for this individual. Um, and it's those sort of things. It's not necessarily thinking, OK, well, I need to go on a course. It's maybe getting a mentor. It's doing different things, doing things that test you as an individual. One piece of advice um, a very influential chair said to me is, is always think of something, you know, to say in a meeting, uh, not something random. And I'm, 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 you know, I can absolutely be random when I want to be. Not something random that nobody really understands, but something that makes sense. And even if you just make one comment in that meeting, it's going to make a difference. And that's yeah. something I've always kept with me is you don't have to put your hand up at every single time and every time somebody, somebody's quiet. But if you've got an observation, be brave and put your hand up. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, we've been talking about individual representation and uh, representation in terms of different groups within society. But I want to talk a little bit about organisational representation and voice. So you've obviously worked in the NHS councils and in, in the third sector. I mean, I guess the question is, where did you feel like you had most influence? And was there anywhere where you felt like you you or your organisation simply didn't have a voice? Um. So I've got to say, I do feel like I've got more influence when I'm closer to delivery. So where I was in adult social care and I had, um, you know, delivery teams and teams, operational teams, where I was in turning point um, and I was responsible for operations, even though I was four or five, you know, away, steps away from, from those individual operations. And even in NELFT, where I am operationally responsible for some services, I feel much closer to making the difference. Um, and I think that for me is a personal driver it's not for everybody but that for me is is very much a personal driver um but i think organizationally where i felt we couldn't make a difference is sometimes when you're a very small player and this goes back to my point around representation of the charitable sector and the voluntary sector um and you have you know meetings that are sometimes close to you or you've got big organizations that dominate um, and I think for me, that's why I think it's so important in this new integrated care system that the voluntary and third sector have a voice and are able to influence uh, around that table um, and giving, like I said earlier, um, not tokenistic uh, seat at the table, but something which can really make a de decision and be involved in that decision making, I think is integral. Because I think sometimes you can overlook those small organisations and you can feel overlooked as a smaller organisation. Yeah. But valid contribution i'd absolutely want to hear it 
Yeah, there's some interesting approaches that smaller third sector organizations are taking to this. So one of the future podcast interviews I've got is with a lady called Edna Robinson, who is the chair of the Greater Manchester Alternative Provider Federation. I think that's <laughs> the right title. Um, but it's, it's, it's a long title, but essentially it's a collaboration of third sector organizations in Greater Manchester who as a group, are taken very seriously at the Greater Manchester Combined Authority level. And that kind of strength in numbers, that kind of single voice, I think mm-hmm. they're, you know, they're only getting started on their journey. But that's an interesting approach, particularly in somewhere like Greater Manchester, where there is quite an advanced level of devolution. And it, it's possible for the third sector to collaborate at a level that matches the geographical footprint of that combined authority. I think that's really exciting and be really interested about I look forward to listening to that podcast actually, because I think that collective membership and collective representation is something that could be a model elsewhere. Um, yeah. And I think I, I love the title alternative provider and um, collaborative because, uh, you know, an APC is usually a cute provider collaborative in our in our love of, of initials here in the NHS. Um, so that is fantastic. Um, and yeah. I think that bringing organisations together and that's what I'm saying earlier in terms of you've got to have the resources to be able to do this. Don't you know, it's naive to think that smaller organisations can be involved in, in terms of of, of um, being representative if they don't have the resources. So we've got to make sure organisations are resourced. And one way of doing that is getting things like that up and running. I, I think that's absolutely very interesting and very, very interested in how that is going to pan out. Yeah, indeed, indeed. So just a final question, Selena. I've really enjoyed this discussion with you, but um, I always ask this of everybody at the end. Um, what bit of advice would you give to someone working in the public sector or in a charity or social enterprise um, who wants to make an impact in the way that you have? Um, stick with it. Stick with it. And um, I know I'm a glass half full sort of person. Um, and, and I know that sometimes comes across as, you know, as being over positive. But actually, I mean, a positive mindset will set you in a you know really good stead. And, you know, I'm old enough now to have seen things come through two, three, four times. But, you know, summer, each time it comes through, there's something slightly different. And I hold on to the fact that actually, if this makes a difference for the people who use our services, that's the most important thing. So don't get cynical. Stick with it and be as optimistic as you can. Fantastic. Selena, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. I really enjoyed that conversation. Selena is one of those people who just really gets it. Um, the bits which really jumped out at me from that conversation were um, that rich experience that Selena has working in councils, working in the third sector, gathering all those experiences and then taking it into the NHS. And as I've said many times on this podcast, the most impressive public servants I've met are the ones who have a mix of experiences. So there really is something here about not being afraid to move out of your comfort zone and to get a mix of experiences, because when you bring that all together, that's going to make you a really attractive candidate and a really good leader and a really effective leader when it comes to trying to implement complicated reforms where you need to bring different parts of the system together. So do not be afraid to leave the well-trodden path when it comes to your career. 
I also want to come back to something else I talk about a lot on this podcast, and that is the importance of councils within the wider health and care system. I'm a firm believer, and you can tell Selena is too, that councils are incredibly influential when it comes to a lot of the wider determinants of health around housing, employment, that type of thing. And it's critical that they have a seat at the table, they have a voice at the ICS level, are heavily involved within integrated care partnerships as well. And the importance of adult social care within the wider health and care system is now something that is completely accepted by the NHS and people like Matthew Taylor at NHS Confed are regularly saying that the biggest thing that the government could do to help the NHS is to have properly funded adult social care in terms of taking the pressure off the NHS. So council services is incredibly important. And finally, to pick up on the last part of our conversation around the importance of networking, this really chimed with me. I love talking to people. I I enjoy hearing their stories. I like making connections with people. But I have to say, um, I agree with Selena that when you're at a conference or something, it is pretty excruciating making yourself go up to people and introduce yourself and try and make conversation. But it's almost always worth it. And it's something that we just have to do, because I think particularly over the last couple of years, we've probably lost some of that enthusiasm and comfort with approaching real people and having conversations and it's so important that we do that so that's all for this episode and do remember to follow us on linkedin or on twitter so you never miss a future episode and you might want to go back and listen to some of the older ones 